If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 16. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 19 through 31 this morning. The text will be on uh, your screen if you have your Bible or a phone app on your Bible, or there's a pew Bible right in front of you. Uh, You can open up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. As you get there, uh, I will read for us this famous story of the rich man and Lazarus. Starting in verse 19, it says this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What in the world? This is an amazing passage of scripture. And if you have spent any time in the gospels, you have undoubtedly come across this. And the themes and the imagery of Luke chapter 16 have captivated your mind. You have wondered about heaven and hell and the imagery of the afterlife. And if you're dead, can you see up into heaven? And can those in heaven see down to the dead? What does this all mean? And furthermore, what does it mean to be rich and poor? Do all the rich go to hell and all the poor simply go to heaven? What are we to make of this passage? There is so much for us to look at and so much that our minds are immediately drawn to. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, our minds will immediately run to this imagery and immediately run to all of these big questions that we have and we'll miss the main point that Jesus is trying to make in this passage. It can kind of be like uh, kids on Christmas morning where they wake up, they open up all their presents, they play with their toys for a little while, but by the end of the day, what are they playing with? the wrapping paper in the boxes. And the parents are like, no, 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 this is the main thing that I want you to see, that I want you to play with. But their minds are captivated by the shiny wrapping paper. There's a lot for us to see in this passage. And there's a lot of questions that we have when reading this passage. 
But there's one main point in particular that Jesus wants us to see. Now, we talked last week about Jesus and the gospel writers and how they are master storytellers, how they build tension on top of itself so that at the end of it, Jesus can can come in with the main point and say, here it is, here's what I really mean. And Jesus is doing something exactly the same as a master storyteller. Now, you might have noticed something unique in this parable, is that there is a man that's been given a name, Lazarus. And this has caused many people to say, well, this isn't a parable. This is a real life story because there has been someone that's given a name and Jesus doesn't do that in his other parables. But if we look at the name Lazarus, if that causes us to pause at all, which it should, and we kind of dig around that, we press that button of Lazarus, we'll see that Jesus is using key words that are meant to engage our minds and help unlock the meaning of this parable. So that's how we're going to start off this morning. There's two things that we need to see about this name Lazarus. The first is the name Lazarus as it's connected to the Old Testament, and the second is the meaning of the name Lazarus, and this will help us. So first, let's look at Lazarus connected to the Old Testament. The answer's on the screen, but don't look at it. If I have any Bible drill people out there, does anybody know uh, Eleazar in the Old Testament and who he is connected to? Eleazar in the Old Testament, he first comes up in Genesis 15, and Eleazar is the right-hand man to Abraham. He is the one who is in charge of Abraham's entire estate. And the one who, in Genesis 15, when Abraham is praying to God, he says, you have not given me a son, and I'm old, I'm about to die, and Eleazar is going to take over my estate. Eleazar is the right-hand man to Lazarus. And here is the second really cool thing about this, is that Eleazar, translated to Greek, is the name Lazarus. Isn't that fascinating? Eleazar, when it's translated to Greek, is the name Lazarus. And there is a very big connection that we're going to see at the very end of this faithful servant of Abraham and the Lazarus in this parable. The second thing that we need to see is the meaning of the name Lazarus. The name means God has helped. Lazarus means God has helped. Which, if you are a first century hearer, if you are in the crowd when Jesus is telling the story, it's an incredible point of irony. You would almost laugh at this story of Jesus because Jesus is saying there's this rich man who had everything that he needed, all that he wanted, and there was this man named God has helped that was laid at the rich man's gate, that sores covered his body. And you would say, wait, wait a second. God's helped this guy? Obviously not. You see, it was common in the first century, and it's even common for us still today, that we think those who are rich or monetarily blessed, those are the ones that God has favor over. Those are the ones that God truly has loved. We might look at our own circumstances in our own life, and this is where we need to pause and really consider this story of the rich man and Lazarus to say God has helped. You may have grown up in church, you may be very familiar with the scriptures, and your life has taken you through various circumstances, circumstances, situations, and experiences that make you question, has God helped? 
What is it in your life that leads you to this tempting question to ask, has God helped? For the aging in our room, our bodies feel like they're breaking. And you might pray, God, heal me. Why aren't you healing me? Why aren't you taking this pain away? For the ones struggling with finances and trying to make ends meet, and you just want to just barely provide for your family, and every month is a struggle financially, and you think, God, help, just help a little bit. I just need a little assistance here. For those who are filled with worry and anxiety and cry out for any relief, for any morsel from the table of Jesus of grace to relieve any anxiety or stress in your life, and you cry out for help, and it doesn't seem to come, and you might wonder, God, have you helped? Are you near? Everyone in this room, every one of us in this room can look back to a moment or moments in our lives and say, man, if I just wouldn't have made that decision, if I, I just wouldn't have made that turn, do you know how different my life would be? Do you know how many different circumstances would have played out in my favor? But it went this way. God, why? Why did it go this way? Why was I so foolish? Why didn't you help me? Why didn't you help me see this rightly? And we might be tempted to ask, God, have you helped me? God, are you out there? Are you really real? And this is the incredible irony that Jesus is trying to set, up, set us up with in this story. So here's the main point that I think that the text is trying to make. There's a lot I have here. Uh, and they're going to work our way backwards. The main point is this. Our lives are not the culmination of experiences and circumstances that have made us who we are. But our lives are made in the one who sees the true heart of who we are and brings us to his side. And the word of God is sufficient for us to see this. Hold on to this promise in faith and trust in the goodness of Jesus. This story shows us what God values to lead us to repentance and to walk in his ways and where to listen to it. And here's another. If our lives end broken, destitute, full of sores, Jesus brings us to the Father's side who's preparing a place for us full of blessing and life. This is a wonderful, wonderful story. So let's watch it unfold. Let's get to that main point uh, together. So to do that, let's back up a little bit. If you have your Bibles open with you, I think it's going to be on the screen, Luke 16. Uh, I'll actually have it as Luke 7. But it's Luke 16, 14, and 15. This is kind of the pre-working of what is leading us into this passage. Jesus is speaking against the Pharisees here where he says this. The Pharisees who loved money, heard this, all of the parables of Jesus, and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. 
So Jesus is, in a way, condemning the Pharisees and their attitude. What do they love? It's money. They love building themselves up in the sight of men. They love the status and the stature that they have. They love being able to say, look at me because obviously I'm the one that God has blessed. Do you see my life? Do you see how I observe the law? Clearly, God has blessed me. And this is where Jesus puts a pause to the story and tells us about the rich man and Lazarus. Let's make a few observations of the rich man and Lazarus. This is really interesting to me. Uh, Let's read verse 19 again to put our minds around it. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So the rich man, he's dressed in purple. Now if you, um, maybe you've read this in a commentary or it might be a note in your Bible. Uh, Purple is a mark of royalty or extreme wealth. Uh, Purple was not easily accessible in this day. Uh, Look at the picture I have here. The way that they got purple was actually from a murex snail. And what they had to do was get several of these snails and take the mucus of the snail and they would create the different variations of the color purple there. Now how they figured that out, I have no idea. But that's what they did. It was extremely rare to get and extremely difficult to get and it was reserved for the extremely wealthy, the incredibly wealthy. We have this kind of mindset today, like people that walk around wearing Gucci or Armada. I think that's Armada. Is that Armada? No? What is it? Armani. Armani. There we go. Thank you. I don't know. But we have this state today where people wear nice things, and we say, oh, they're wearing Gucci. They got it together. I mean, here's the rich man. He's not wearing Gucci. He's wearing purple. And this is an extreme sign of wealth, very reserved wealth. The next we see is that he wore fine linen, and this is to show that even his underwear was a silky garment that is only available for the incredible wealthy. And the text says that he lived like this every day. He ate well, he never lacked anything. Now, if we can get any more opposite than this rich man, it would be Lazarus. And what does it say about Lazarus? That he was laid at the gate. Now, this implies that Lazarus could not walk, uh, that he was seeking help, potentially from the rich man, and he needed friends that would take him to the gate or lay him there, that he was crippled, he was lame, he was laid there. The second, we see that there were sores all over his body. Not only is he starving, just wanting a morsel to fall from the table, his whole body is covered in sores. Now imagine this is maybe from laying completely down all the time, how sores will develop on your body if you don't clean your sheets or are able to roll over. And then it says this, even the dogs licked his sores. Now dogs in the first century are not like our house pets now that we love, that will greet us when we come home. Dogs in the first century were detestable. They were scavengers. No one liked dogs. And what Jesus is saying here is, what's even worse, the dogs licked his sores. Lazarus was in the most destitute place that he could be. And then here is the great reversal that comes in. The time when the beggar died, it says that the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man was also buried and in Hades where he was in torment. Now notice two things about what happens in this passage. The first is this. 
the rich man asks Abraham to do what? Send Lazarus, which implies what? He's known him a long time. It implies that the rich man has known this man by name. He's probably seen him at his gate. He knew he needed help, but he didn't do anything. And he still sees himself, the rich man, is in this place to be served. Send Lazarus to help me. But what does he ask for? I thought this was interesting as well. He asks that Lazarus dip his finger in water to cool his tongue. This is the the least amount of relief that you could get. He doesn't ask, will you take me out of here? Can I leave? Can you come get me? No, he just asks for a little bit of relief, which C.S. Lewis says about this in hell. He says, the hell's gates are locked from the inside. Everyone that goes does so willingly. We've painted this image of hell that people who are there are are begging to leave. They're, they're begging to get out of their eternal torment. And we read phrases in scripture that they are weeping and they're gnashing their teeth. But the phrase gnashing teeth is not like um, that they're in pain so they just grit their teeth. The, the phrase gnashing of teeth means that they are angry. They're gnashing their teeth against God. Why have you done this? Do you see the state that I'm in? They're angry through their tears. Lazarus, he doesn't ask to get out. He just asks for a little relief. He asks for the smallest amount of relief. Then here's Abraham's response. And there's a lot here that can confuse us, but there's also a lot here that can educate us as well. Abraham says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, and that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from here to us cannot. So a a base reading of this text would make us think, rich, go to hell, because they got good things, and now they, for some reason, need punishment because they're rich. And the poor go to heaven. But that's not what the text is saying at all. And we know this for a few reasons. The first reason is because Abraham was incredibly wealthy. Abraham had a large flock, a large estate. He was to be a blessing to all nations. Abraham had extreme wealth. And where is he in this parable? He's in heaven. The second clue is the word that Abraham uses. He calls the rich man son. Now, who is Abraham in the biblical story? Abraham is the one who God is going to send blessing throughout the nations. Through Abraham and through his line in Genesis 15 and onward, Abraham is the one that is going to make God's name known. Through Abraham's line, there's going to be a chosen people who are going to be a kingdom of priests. We saw this in 1 Peter a few weeks ago, that as Christians, as believers now, we are a kingdom of priests that make Jesus' name known. So when Abraham says son, it's implying that the rich man would be a part of this line and he should know 
better of how he lived his life. That he should know what Moses and the prophets have said about their treatment of the poor and how he has acted and behaved. And I think this is a, a good spot for us to pause and reflect because we need to truly look at our lives and the resources that we have. If we wanted to compare ourselves to the rich man or the poor man, uh, I got bad news for us. We are all the rich man here because of the amount of wealth that we have. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, we are incredibly wealthy. But more than that, more than monetary wealth, we have heard the good news, and a lot of us here have responded to the good news of Jesus. We have received his forgiveness, mercy, and love, and we are called to be people that extend what? His forgiveness, mercy, and love. How are we doing at that? Are we people that extend forgiveness, mercy, and love? Now, the second request of the rich man is the most telling in this passage, I think. He says this, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And what does the rich man say? He says, No! Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes, they will repent. What is he implying? He's saying that the scriptures, they won't listen to them. Like I didn't listen to them. But what Abraham is telling us is that the scriptures are sufficient. They are sufficient for life, for following in faith, and for seeing what God values. The crucial takeaway here is that the promise of God can be found in the scriptures. And the scriptures are enough for us to cling to faith and live lives of obedience. And this is where this can rub us some because we go through our lives oftentimes maybe even begging for a miracle. I mean, just to see a little bit. If I could just taste a little bit of it or see a little bit, then I truly believe. Ten years ago, a really popular book came out called 90 Minutes in Heaven. Anybody remember that? Maybe anybody have that book? Or a book from a little kid called Heaven is for Real. And these stories captivate our imagination because these are people that have claimed to go to heaven and then can say, yeah, I was there and I was dead and I came back to life. And so our minds and our imaginations will run to that. We'll want to read those stories and we'll want to hold on to that. But what Abraham is saying is that's not enough. Ultimately, you won't believe it. The scriptures are enough. The scriptures are sufficient. Even if a dead man comes back from the dead, you won't believe the scriptures are enough. How quickly are we ready to forget what we have been convinced of because life gets hard? Miracles have a short shelf life. How quickly were the Hebrews ready to forget the parting of the Red Sea or the pillar of fire that led them? And they said, let us just go back to Egypt. They had fish to eat. Miracles have a short shelf life. But the word of God is sufficient to show us the character, the nature, the love, and the goodness of God. Sores develop over our bodies Our lives seem to deteriorate. Relationships break. And we just think, I could believe if something a little bit more clear came. And Abraham says, no. 
Moses and the prophets are enough. So is that it? Is that what we are to take away from this passage? It is, the, it is a primary point. We live in a time where we have more access to the scriptures and to good Bible teaching than ever before. And the scriptures are what should orient and set our lives around them because they reveal to us this good nature of God. God does not value us because of the success of our church. God doesn't value us because of the success of our marriages or our family, that we have a successful job, that we did ministry well. God, as Jesus said in the passage right before, he sees the heart. This means that your life could be destitute, broken, full of sores, you're just consumed with the consequences of your own sin, and you don't know how it gets out of this you cling to faith in Jesus, and God sees that. That is what the scriptures are sufficient to show us too. That he shows us that in Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God, and it was marked to him as righteousness. James 2.23, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Cling fast to Jesus. Our lives are a culmination of experiences and flaws. And Jesus says, you can bring nothing. Just depend on me. Now consider Lazarus, but not this Lazarus in the story. Consider the Lazarus in John chapter 11. What does the name of Lazarus mean? God has helped. And so here we have the sister of Lazarus coming to Jesus saying, if you would have been here, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And what does Jesus do? Jesus commands by the power of his word to walk out of the grave. Lazarus means God has helped. Who helped Lazarus in this moment? Jesus? God? Yes. What happens directly after this story? is that word gets back to the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests. They hear, they hear that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And you know what they want to do? They plot to kill Jesus even more. Jesus' words come true in this passage. That even if a man rises from the dead, you won't believe. Moses and the prophets are enough. And they point to Jesus. But is all, that all what we're supposed to see in this story? I have a hunch that it's not. I think that there is a second Lazarus in this story that we are supposed to see. And let me show you. Remember Abraham's servant. His name is Eleazar. And Eleazar, who was in charge of all that Abraham had, would be rightful heir to the wealth and prosperity of Abraham. Now consider this for a moment. Let's just use some logic and reason. Abraham is getting up in age. He's probably 90-ish years old when he's giving this prayer to God to say, look, I have no heir. I need someone or Eleazar is going to become the heir of my estate. Eleazar has to be an incredibly bright man to keep up with the property and the finances of Abraham, to know where everything is going, where all of his servants are. Eleazar has to be incredibly bright, which means that Eleazar knows he knows that if the old man kicks a bucket, this is mine. So Eleazar, he could play stingy. 
He could start trying to push Abraham or convince him to go another way, but what does he do? He remains faithful to Father Abraham. And one day, Abraham has a son named Isaac, who is now going to be the rightful heir of everything that Abraham has. And I could imagine any human part of us, really, would make us a little bit bitter. Just like, oh, man, I was close. Could have had all of that. My life would have been set, and then I would have been the man in charge. Somebody would have been serving me. But is that the attitude of Eleazar? No. Eleazar goes to find a wife for Isaac. And here's what one scholar has to say about that. Though he had been the legal heir to receive all of Abraham's possessions, Abraham gave him an assignment which was to result in his own disinheritance. But the Bible shows he carried out the orders of Abraham in a precise and faithful way. Eleazar agreed to do what Abraham desired, although the fulfillment of this task meant the complete abandonment of Eleazar's claim on any of Abraham's inheritance, both present and future. Each step, Eleazar took to the north to go find a wife for Isaac was one of faithfulness to his master, father, Abraham. Now, consider Jesus and all that has been given to him, all that is rightfully his. And then Paul says in Philippians that being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Doing what? By taking the very nature of of a servant. Jesus leaves his father's side. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Consider this Jesus as he stands before Herod and the soldiers. Uh, They were mocking him and they arrayed him, do you know what it says? In splendid clothing. The Gospel of John says that they draped a purple robe around him. It's the great reversal. See the rich man as he stands over Lazarus in a way, mocking him, saying, God must not have favor over you. But now here is Jesus being mocked by putting a robe of purple over him, arrayed in splendid clothing. And what do they do? They beat him. They flog him. Jesus is left with sores and wounds all over his body to the point where they lay him on a cross and bind him there. They put nails through his feet and his hands. And then in Psalm 22, which is one of the great prophetic songs that point us to Jesus that was written hundreds of years before Jesus' life, it's a great testimony to what happened. It says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. See the second Lazarus in Jesus. The second Eleazar, who's left the father's side, who is beaten with wounds. He's mocked with a purple robe, and dogs encircle him. But that's not it. 
What happens with Jesus after he's crucified? He comes back from the dead. He comes back from the dead, and there is a foreshadowing of the faithful Jesus who left the Father's side. It's a completion to show how Jesus started by what he's saying. The Pharisees, uh, Jesus said to this, to the Pharisees, that the law and prophets were proclaimed until John. So Jesus says that there is a very clear stopping point here about where the law and the prophets proclaimed to. But now the kingdom of the good of God is being preached. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, in the past God spoke to our ancestors, the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in the last days he's spoken to us by his son. Where does Lazarus go or where do we see uh, him end his life? He's returning to the side of Abraham, Eleazar, the faithful servant. Where does Jesus go? He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he gives us this opportunity to see the goodness and beauty of Jesus, that our lives could end destitute, broken, full of sores, but all we have to do is lay it at the foot of the cross. Jesus redeems it all, and he's come back from the dead to tell us. I don't know what disappointments that you have in your life, what your life is consisted of or is consistent in right now. And we are a mess at our best with mixed emotives, difficult disappointments, things that have left us wondering, has God helped? Lazarus, has God helped? But when we see Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, we know this, that we can trust in the law and the prophets and the word of Jesus. So here's three things that we should take uh, from the passage this morning. I don't have these on the screen, uh, but here I'll give them to you this morning. First one is this. The message of the scriptures is that those who cling to Jesus in faith, although the sores of death may be all over your body, the effects of sin might still be showing real consequences. You can cling to Jesus and he will bring you to the Father's side. Like Lazarus, those who God helps will be born after death into God's presence. Second, we often find ourselves inserting ourselves in the story. Last week we talked about are we either Simon the Pharisee or are we um, the woman of the city? This week we might be tempted to see are we the rich man or are we Lazarus, but I don't think we should be either of those. I think we should find ourselves placed in a different position. I think we should be the ones that are the five brothers, the ones that uh, the rich man wants warned. You have time here um, to respond to the gospel in faith. The brothers, uh, the rich man wants his brothers warned to do what? To repent and believe because hell is real. Like the rich man, the unrepentant will experience irreversible separation from God. But like Lazarus, the repentant will experience irreversible communion with God. And then lastly, uh, Jesus does come back from the dead. And through Abraham, Moses, and the prophets, and in these last days, God reveals himself and his will through his son. We can cling to those promises 
and hold on to those to the end of our days. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray uh, that you help us to see that your word is sufficient, that you have spoken to us and revealed your character and your nature and your goodness to us by your word. And Father, I confess and I imagine I'm not the only one in this room that oftentimes reading your word is difficult. It's hard. It's, it's hard to understand. It's hard to interpret and digest. So Father, I pray that you give us eyes, ears, and hearts of wisdom. I pray that you make Alpine a place where we have good teaching that helps show people uh, how to rightly understand your word. And there's life in it because it points to you, Jesus. So Father, I, I pray. I don't know uh, the experiences that are in this room. I don't know the sin that we hold on to, that we carry around. Uh, but I do know that we, we've often wondered, have you helped? And so Father, I pray today that by your spirit, that it move in our hearts to see that you have helped through your son and that you've called us to your side in him. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.